0: Thank you. What a great gift it is to be in your presence. Your holiness and your joy, your love for your children, your love for your spouse, your love for each other is palpable. Remember in 2006, Priscilla reminded me, that's when we were at Quadna, so that's decade ago, and I remember at the, sitting up in that old upper room, and people were saying, now well, we have to go back to the real world. Did we ever consider that this is the real world? This is the kingdom that God has created for us. That maybe power and corruption, violence and sadness and despair is the illusion. And that we are experiencing the kingdom of God where small children throw frisbees and pour chocolate into their mother's face. This is the kingdom of God where strangers gather around the table and talk about their hopes and dreams for their children and future generations. This is the kingdom where strangers gather together and pray for each other's needs, knowing that each of us carries burdens too heavy for ourselves. What a great gift. Thank you. I hope some of you were not disappointed that you were not being talked to by the coach of the sh- sh- Minnesota Timberwolves. I had that experience speaking in a high school in Minnesota, and faculty were kind of disappointed. How'd you get Tom Thibodeau? Oh, Tom Thibodeau. I was in a Minneapolis speaking at a, at a hotel, and the person showing me my room was Jim McDonald, Darby's son. Tom, how are you doing, Jim? And Tom looked at the group that I was speaking to. He says, you're in for a real treat. He gave me the introduction. We worked together for a lot of years, and this, this guy, you're going to enjoy him. And I said, how's your dad? And it was about a month before Darby died. He's okay. And we had a marvelous talk, and then we stepped over to the side, and we prayed together. All right. So I come out after my speech. I got a flat tire in my car. Holy smokes! It's four o'clock. It's a, it's it's three thirty in the afternoon. I got to get back to La Crosse. I got a flat tire in a parking lot on Highway 100. And I go up to the valet, who's a gentleman who's not from this country, and I said, I got a flat tire. Who should I call? He says, Well, you never get anybody coming to come and tow you. He says, It's way too expensive. Where's your car? And I showed him. He says, Here, give me the keys. So I gave him the keys, and and, and he took off. About forty-five minutes later, he comes back. I put air in. I put air in it. It's leaking. You got a nail in it. You got about forty-five minutes to get to a place before it goes flat again. Get going. Thank you, sir. So I get in my car and I get onto four ninety-four, and of course it's a parking lot at four fifteen in the afternoon. And I'm kind of and pretty soon I get off at an exit, and I, I see a dealership and I pull into the dealership. And I said, "Can you fix? I, I need a tire. I got to get home to Lacrosse. Can you do you have time?" Well, yeah, we'll look at it. And so they looked at it, and then they came back about a half hour later and said, "We don't have a tire that size. And if we have to order one, you can't can't get it until tomorrow." And uh, we put the donut on for you. Well, well, thanks. I said, "Well, how much was Oh Well, nothing. He said, uh, "Last week my son broke down in Lacrosse, Wisconsin." And people in your, hometown, in your hometown, they took care of my son so well. I, I just want to pay it forward. Thank you so very much. I said, well, thank you. I said, where can I get a ticket? Where can I get a tire? He said, well, there's a Sam's Club up there. So I got in my car, and I drove up to Sam's Club, and a young man in a grease-stained hat says, what can I do for you? I said, well, I, I need a tire for my car. I have to get back to La Crosse, Wisconsin. I said, when do you have a tire? Looked, yeah, we got one. He says, you just walk around the store for about an hour. I said, we have to take care of. So I walk around for about an hour in Sam's Club and I come up and the young man's there and I said, Well, how much do I owe you? He says, Well, just a minute. He said, It says, Here to you're Tom Thibodeau. Are you the coach of the Chicago Bulls? At that time he was in Chicago I said, No, I'm not. Well, we didn't think so. We didn't think the coach of the Chicago Bulls would be driving a Buick. <laughs> but here's your tire. Isn't it kind of interesting how God uses all kinds of different people to help us along the way? All those acts of kindness. A man who I'd never met before and will never see again made sure I had air in my tire. A young man in a grease-stained cap took the time to make a contact with me and make me laugh. And you think about all the small interactions that bless our lives. All the small interactions that bless the connections. Blessed be the bind that... the bond that ties, the tie that binds, we are blessed, my friends. So tonight I want to continue with, that, with the theme that we had started with in this morning in terms of uh, slowing down and being present. And here's from Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and he lay down, and the Lord called again, Samuel, Samuel. And he got up and he went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time. And he got up and he went to Eli and he said, Here I am, you called me. And then Eli perceived that it was the Lord who was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord. For your servant is listening. So Samuel went down and lay in that place. And the Lord came and stood there calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Speak, Lord, you are the Almighty. I am ready to hear what you have to say. In the Jewish tradition, obedience is one of the highest virtues. Obedience. Obedience is much more difficult than sacrifice. Obedience comes from the Latin word obedire, which means to listen. Obey your mom and dad. Aren't you supposed to obey? So listen. And sometimes we get a little bit frustrated with our children. I was watching a couple of you tonight being so very patient at supper time when children did not want to eat what was on their plate. This is usual for children. That's why many of us grew up on peanut butter and jelly. There was, you know, and then We think all of ourselves and they all oh, wonder what it was like when I was growing up. And you ever find yourself saying, "Well, oh, my mom used to always say that or oh, my dad used to always say that. Why did he used to always say that? Obviously we weren't paying attention so they had to repeat themselves. It's hard to learn to listen, to be silent, to acquiesce in terms of my own will so that I can listen to yours. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be my name. My kingdom come, my will be done. Isn't that the great temptation? The obedience. We have a new pastor in our parish, came about two years ago, and made a great liturgical change. So we got to this mass and came to the part of the Our Father. And we said it, he said, whoa, 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 that's way too fast. Let's try it again. And then we said it again, still too fast. This is the prayer that Jesus said. These are the very words that Jesus used to address God as Father. Let's slow it down. And now every Sunday, because we're in such a rush, even to get through our prayers, we're in such a rush. Slow it down. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Obedience, to listen to the words that we're speaking. Two years ago, one of our friends from the Place of Grace, it's a Catholic worker house that Priscilla and I were part of the community, and we feed people the streets. And I got a call from the hospital that one of our gentlemen, Jim, was dying. And he wanted me to be the power of attorney that when it came for him to die, he wanted me to make the medical decisions. This is a man of the streets that I've been having dinner with for the last 18 years. He's estranged from his family and friends, and he wanted me to stand with him at the hour of death. And I thought, well, it could be weeks, and it actually was only days. Three days later on a Saturday night, I get a call and the nurse said, Jim is dying, he needs you. And Priscilla and I went over to the hospital and there's Jim, a man of the streets, poor, downtrodden, very few teeth left in his face. And here are the nurses wiping his head with a cool towel massaging his feet, talking to him in gentle and quiet voices in the same level of reverence from anybody who would have a title in the town. Priscilla and I gathered and we held hands with each other and took Jim's hand and started praying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And Priscilla snatched my hand and said, Slow down. Start again. (laughs) and you begin to realize that nothing important in our lives happens fast. It's when we find ourselves quiet and slow. Speak, Lord. Your servant. Lord, we are your servants. It is our desire to do what you want. It is our life's purpose to serve you. It is our joy to be humble in your presence. One of the things we're fond of saying in servant leadership is service is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. If you cannot be a servant, you will never be a leader. There has to be that level in terms of humility. Humility. What a great gift, all of you who are serving us because you are so humble and joyful. And look at these young college-age people and high school-age people. Holy smokes. Jumping and praising the Lord and then picking up a three-year-old with grace. Your servant is listening. Lord, I'm not going to ignore you. I'm not going to pretend that I'm listening. I'm not going to fake it when I say that I'm giving you my attention. I will take your word and it will become a part of my life. In the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. Say but the word and my daughter will be healed. To be open to the word is to have our lives transformed. Jesus is the most powerful word that God ever spoke. To be open to the word demands of us discipline, obedience, contemplation. Contemplation comes from two Latin words, cum templus. Cum means with, templus means of temples, within the temple. And the pagans would capture birds from the mountains, bring them down to their temple, and before sacrificing them, they would do kind of forensic medicine. They would open them up and look through the entrails of the birds, seeing if they had ingested messages from God. Where do the the pagans, the Greeks and Romans, think that God exists? On the top of mountains. So the birds were flying in the mountains, they thought that they ingested the messages of God, and so they were looking for them in the entrails. Now, Christians have never had a new idea. Really kind of interesting. Christianity, where we've always been really good, is coming into a culture and taking what is and making it sacred. Giving it a new meaning, a depth of meaning. And so contemplation, who's the new temple? What do we understand from all the scriptures? Paul the Apostle, who's the new temple? Who does Jesus say the temple is? Ourselves. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember the old show, Laverne and Shirley? Some of you are too young, you can catch it on TV, Family Land. Remember Laverne and Shirley? Oh my goodness gracious, and there's Laverne saying, to Shirley saying to Laverne, you know Laverne, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Yours is an amusement park. The temple of the Spirit that God speaks through and in us. What has the Spirit sent to you today? What has the Spirit said when you watch children play and mothers patient? What has it said to you today, the Spirit of the Lord, where young people serve us meals and wash our plates? And smile while doing it. Spirit. Spirit in the Greek comes from the word parakletos. Parakletos. And it means one who responds to the cry. One who responds to the cry. Jean Vanier, who I'll say something more about in a few moments, taught us, Priscilla and I, this last summer. For the first nine months of our life, he said, all of us are given free room and board. (laughs) And then we're born into the world, and we cry out, Ah! And then we're picked up and held close. And loved by the paracletus. Our mothers are the spirit of God. Our first encounter of the spirit of God are our mother's love. Who responds to our cry over and over and over again. And all day long I've watched you. The indwelling of the Spirit reaching out to children and to each other. But you have to slow down. Be present. Contemplate. Carl Rahner says that our task today is not to pump religion into people, it is to call the Spirit forth. Redemption has happened. The Spirit dwells in the hearts and minds of God's people. Call the Spirit forth. For those of you who are worried about your young adult children, you brought them up in the faith, and you wonder, do they believe? They are God's children, and you have shared with them that Spirit And our task is to continue to invite it forth, continue to witness to God's presence and love in their lives. Contemplation is the journey within. The Jesuits' definition of a contemplative is the ability to take a long, loving look at the real. A long, loving look at the real. A long loving look at the real. So I've watched you, contemplatives, sitting in an Adirondack chair and looking out onto the lake. I've watched you sitting in a lawn chair. I watched you with a second cup of coffee with a pensive and thoughtful look in your eye. Last summer, Priscilla and I had the privilege of going to Trolly, France where we went on a retreat was Jean Vanier. Jean Vanier is probably the finest spiritual writer in the world today. Uh, St. John's just published a book on Vanier's life. He's 90 years of age. He began the L'Arche communities. L'Arche is the French word for arc where people live together in community with people who are disabled. And what Vanier says is this, is that all of us are disabled. All of us are living with disabilities. It's just those of us who are physically and mentally able, we put on masks. We disguise ourselves. We build walls. But when you're disabled, when you are in need, when you are vulnerable, you call forth the other. Jean Vanier, like Darby McDonald, has been my spiritual mentor for a lifetime. 1973, I first heard about him when I was a missionary in Prince George, British Columbia, Canada. Vanier's father had been the governor general of Canada. He was well on his way to an important role in the military when he heard a call in the evening, much like Samuel. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So he resigns his commission in the Navy and he begins to pursue words that, that Jesus is calling him. And in 1964, after having completed his doctorate degree, he's still kind of lost. And he goes to a place in Trolley, France, where there was a mental institution for men. And at that time, we kind of warehoused people. And he saw how people were living, and he said, I must do something. So he went back, and he asked two of the men to come and live with him as brothers. And that became the beginning of L'Arche, living in community with those who are... Other would say are rejected. So we went to Trolley, France, to his house for a retreat with 40 people, English speaking. We were the only two people from North America. Do you ever have an idea of a kind of a hero, an idol, a mentor, somebody that you put up on a pedestal? Have you ever had those kind of people in your life? And then have you really then met them and you're kind of disappointed? We met John Bonnier and it was off the charts when he talked about Jesus it was as if Jesus was sitting right here he is talking about his best friend when we got there they reminded us you know this is a silent retreat you can, you can talk during the first meal but after that it's, it's, it's silence you can talk back in your own rooms Bersal said why don't you tell me I guess I didn't read the fine print I said You know how so often you have to think, well, it's the conversations that we have that build community. Here it is paradoxically. Community is built in silence. When we're quiet with each other. Have you had the experience? been sitting at home at night, you turn everything off, you're just tired, and you're both sitting there, and it's quiet for about 10 or 15 minutes. Then one of you starts to speak, and the other person says, I was thinking the same thing. What does it say in Acts of the Apostles? They became of one mind and one heart. By silence, being quiet with each other. So we're sitting there in silence. And Jean Barnier comes in to speak. 90 years of age. Wearing the same blue windbreaker that I saw him wear 10 years ago when he was at St. John's and they gave him an award. Simple. Smiled at all of us. And he said, Eddie Hillesheim, who had a diary that was found in 1980, she was in in Auschwitz, and her diary is found in 1980. They said, had Anne Frank lived to be an adult, it would have been Eddie Hillesheim. She's beautiful. The book is called The Interrupted Life, talking about her experience of God in the camps. And Eddie Hillesheim writes this, All of our lives are a beautiful well. And at the bottom of the well, there's this fresh, rushing water, the source of all life. And all of us thirst for that fresh, rushing water, the source of all life, who is God. I thirst. Jesus on the cross, I thirst. I thirst for more life. I thirst for more love. I thirst for more forgiveness. I thirst. But unfortunately, our beautiful wells get clogged with garbage. So, for the next four days, we're going to remove the garbage so that we can taste that fresh, rushing water, and to remove the garbage you need contemplation." And he smiled at us and said, isn't it true, we're all a mess? Isn't it true, isn't it true we all got garbage? Have you watched the news recently? Isn't it true that even though people have a good intention in our lives, we were hurt somewhere along the way? Isn't it true that somewhere along the way you and I may have hurt others? And what happens in terms of contemplation to take a long, loving look at the real? I have to face all that garbage. I have to face my own limitations. I have to begin to understand that Jesus loves me just the way I am. Garbage and all. Our best and our worst days. I have all my notes written out. I don't like to read from notes, but I have to. March 19th of this year, I missed a step. I fell down our basement stairs, hit my head on the basement floor. Thank God Priscilla was home, came down, and I didn't know who I was or where I was. She helped me back upstairs. I was supposed to speak at church that night. She called our pastor and said he he can't can't speak. He doesn't know who who he is. She took me off to the hospital. See me, put me in a wheelchair, wheel me in. And there are all these nurses who I have been teaching for the last 20 years. (laughs) Coming up and placing their hand on my wrist and said, we're here for you. Simple acts of kindness, Tim, that I will never forget. Reconfirm one of my biases as a teacher, never give a nurse less than a B. <laughs> you never know. So, well, what's happened because of that? Because of the fall, um, I've, had, I've had a brain scan. There's no permanent damage, but I, I cannot smell, I cannot taste. So, that's why I was enjoying you watching you eat the food, quite honestly. Um... I'm having trouble with memory. So sometimes as I speak, the words get stuck. I, I want to say something, I know it's there, but it's, it's, not, it's not coming. When we first came last night, there were many of you that I recognized, but I didn't know your names because it's stuck. I'm limited. I'm about 70% of what I would usually think I'd be. I'm disabled. But isn't it true, are we not all? Isn't it true that each of us carries burdens? You are wonderful people. It's just a grace to be in your presence. But let's be honest. Below the surface in this room, there's oceans of pain. You don't know whose family is dealing with cancer, or heart disease, or addiction, or dementia, or unemployment. Isn't it true in every group, we have no idea the crosses that other people carry? But in those quiet moments when you take a long-looking, loving look at the real, you understand that there's a great deal of suffering in other people's lives. So people say, well, why don't you take time for contemplation or prayer? Oh, I'm too busy. Oh, I got all these projects. And six months ago, I would have given you the same answer, but it's a cop-out. We avoid prayer because of what it demands of us. We allow ourselves to become distracted because it's easier. Daniel Goleman in his book called Focus, Daniel Goleman is the writer who gives us the term emotional intelligence. And his new book is called Focus. It's called The Hidden Driver of Excellence. Number one best-selling book in business, by the way. And he says this, we not only have a nation of attention deficit children, we have a nation of attention deficit adults. Have you been to a middle school concert this last year? Any of you? Who do you have to tell to put the cell phones away? We have to create laws that say that you cannot use this and drive at 75 miles an hour. Because it's dangerous. And Goldman says that the greatest temptation that all of us have is distraction. Being pulled apart. Rather than being focused. the greatest gift we give to another human being is 100% of our attention. So watching you young moms and dads with your children and holding them so lovingly and making sure that they have a bite of food and you kind of wipe their face, watching you hold hands as you sing songs and pay attention to the prayers that are taking place here, what a great gift. Whatever you pay attention to, you get more of. Whatever you, as parents, pay attention to, your children are going to get more of. Why? They're always watching. What are you paying attention to? Whether it be in our families, our churches, our communities, our businesses, what are you paying attention to? And that's what contemplation is: pay attention, a long, loving look at the real. So although you might encounter some of the garbage, there's so much more good stuff. I am limited and blessed. We can drive through a country and Pers- Persoa Perso- hits a skunk, it doesn't bother me. <laughs> but I can't tell you how many times over the last three months I've prayed for families whose child has autism. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed for families whose young person came back from Iraq or Afghanistan with a traumatic brain injury and having a real hard time adjusting. I can't tell you how many times that I've prayed for people who are watching their mom or dad suffer from dementia or Alzheimer's. Pay attention to the good stuff. And what good stuff happens to you, what do you gotta do? You gotta tell other people. How many of you are gonna leave on Sunday and not say anything? That, what people say, what'd you do last uh, what'd you do last week, Mark? Oh nothing. Just went on vacation. <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't for a moment when anybody would give you, I'll tell you what happened. It was amazing. Steve, where were you last week? Well, I was kind of up at this camp. <laughs> no, no, no. And I saw people I hadn't seen for a long time, and it was incredible, the good people that I saw, the young parents. When good stuff happens to you, you've got to tell other people. Like I tell people in the state of Wisconsin, if somebody ever shoots a 14-point buck, they don't keep it to themselves. (laughs) So the last Thursday of January, 12 years ago, I'm speaking to a group of alumni in Appleton, Wisconsin, about the good stuff happening at the They kind of send me out, kind of a, like I said, an ambassador for goodness, reminding them of all the good stuff that's happening at their college. Now it's 8 o'clock at night. All I've had to eat are hors d'oeuvres. I have to go to Fond du Lac, which is 70 miles away, and do another presentation the next day. So I haven't had to supper, and I don't know where I'm going to stay. So I'm walking through the lobby the Paper Valley in, and I bump into a gentleman. Excuse me, sir. Mark! Tom! It's my brother Mark! <laughs> He's a year younger than I am. He's a district attorney of Adams County. Hope none of you ever met him. And I, and I said, "What are you doing here?" He said, "I'm here for the state tea convention." What are you doing here? I said, "I'm giving a talk for a terrible." I said, "What are you doing now?" He says, "I'm go over to step one get a sandwich." I said, "We're old enough. Let's go to the tavern." So we went in. and We sat down. We had a sandwich and we had a beverage. And he says, "Where are you staying tonight?" I said, "I don't have a place to stay." Why don't you stay with me?" He said. The state's already paid for room. If you don't mind sleeping with me, I got a king-sized bed. Not at all," I said. So I and I got my stuff, came up to his room, we're having a conversation. It was time to get up and go to bed, so we both got up, took our medication. That time of life. <laughs> hopped in bed with each other, he hit the lights, and instantly we're 12 and 11 again. The last time we slept in the same bed, we're 12 and 11. We're laughing, we're giggling, we're snorting. <laughs> just like 12 and 11-year-old boys do. I bet that happened in a Larson household too, growing up. <laughs> you, know, you know, all of it. And then... He starts talking about our grandmother, Florence, who an incredible influence on both of our lives. In 1937, my grandfather was hit and killed by a trolley car in Milwaukee, leaving my grandmother with five children under the age of 11. She was a single-parent businesswoman in the Great Depression. She had her apartment and shop. In Milwaukee, and she'd get up in the morning, feed the older four, give them to the care of the 11-year-old, take the baby down to the shop and begin good, cunning hair. At 10 o'clock, she'd stop and nurse her baby. A friend of hers had given birth to twins who wasn't strong enough to nurse the children. My grandmother nursed the twins. She nursed three babies at 10, at noon, at 3, at 5, and then she went up and took care of her family. We're talking a strong woman here. When I was growing up, my mother was not in good health. And grandma would come for a week every summer. This was her vacation. And she'd clean and organize and sew and do things my mother was not able to do. And at 5 o'clock at night, she'd come out of the basement and go upstairs, get herself cleaned up for the evening, come down for supper, and taught us how to make a brandy old-fashioned suite. (laughs) Taught us how to play sheephead. And she gave us good cards. She wanted the best for us. She wanted us to win. When my brother went to law school, he lived with my mother, my, my grandmother, and he come home at 11 o'clock at night, there'd be a plate warming in the oven. We talked about our mom and our dad. Dad's been dead for 18 years now. Mom's been gone for 14. We talked about our cousins. We talked about our uncles and aunts. We talked about our brothers and sisters. We talked about our wives. We talked about our children. We talked about our friends talked about our coworkers. We talked about the good work that God has given us to do for these last 50 years. And in the dark of the night, we were reminded that we've been loved for a lifetime. A contemplation on goodness. The good stuff. With the person right next to you, just talk with each other. What's the good stuff in your life right now? With the person right next to you, talk about the good stuff. All right, let me interrupt, please. Let me interrupt. Uh, 30 seconds of silence. 30 seconds of silence. The silence of your heart. Please say a prayer of gratitude for all the good stuff in your life. Amen. So as John Vanier is giving a retreat, uh, to you know to to people and he's talking about the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, blessed are those who strive for justice. After retreat he's walking through one of the houses and in a chapel there's a young man, and the young man is probably in his mid twenties and he's sitting in a chair and the man's weeping. And Vanier goes and sits down next to the young man, and the young man continues to weep. And finally the young man speaks and said, I came here, I came here because I wanted to do some good. I came here because I wanted to serve people. But sometimes I just get so frustrated. And I was working with a man today, with autism, and I, by the end of the night, I just want to put my pillow on his face. I just could not stand it. I need to leave. That man does not meet my frustration. He suffered enough. And the young man begins to cry again. And when he stops, Vanye says, "No." you must stay. You came to do good work and you have. But Jesus did not say, blessed are those who work with the poor. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Today you discovered your own poverty. It is your day of redemption. Contemplation. The process is that after you spend time in contemplation, you go through a time of purgation. You come up against your limitations and your own poverty. Who wants to do that? Who wants to admit to our limitations? In a culture that exalts ego, this is countercultural. But what happens is that once you go through the fire... And I'm looking right at you, Tim, because I know I, I would know this to be true about you. Once you go through the fire, what happens? You're on fire. The next step in terms of, 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 of contemplation, purgation, is illumination. Oh, now I see. Now I see. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. And you know that when Newman went back to England, disgraced as a slaver, taken off the ships, a disgrace to his family because he had stood and recognized that he had sinned when he started to understand that the human cargo that he was carrying back and forth were human beings, made in the image and likeness of God, he couldn't stand himself. So he lived as a recluse. But God, God wasn't done with him yet sends a young man to him by the name of Wilberforce. A slight young man, a bright young man, a thoughtful young man who runs for parliament and gets elected, and with the tutelage and mentorship, with the goodness and gospel witness of John Newman, enters legislation to end slavery in England. And six months before Wilberforce died, England passed the law that forbids slavery. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Purgation. How is it that our suffering and our limitations serve others? I can't tell you how many friends I've had that have can- had cancer. And almost a person say that this was the best thing that ever happened to me. One of my best friends at Viterbo, Earl Madari. Earl could have been the next Pavarotti. He won the Nationals in, in opera. Metropolitan Opera editions. Earl was number one from Viterbo University in La Crosse, Wisconsin. But he heard a different call to go to St. Elizabeth Seton's in Holman, Wisconsin to be the youth minister and choir director for $5,000 a year. You can imagine that phone call home. He had a a full ride scholarship to the University of Michigan in operatic performance, but instead was gonna become a youth minister and the choir director. In order to help pay bills, he had to sing at, at weddings on Saturdays. But it was a gospel witness. This is what he was called to do. And then he went on began his master's degree, and we hired him at Paterbo. My student now becomes my colleague. Went on and got his doctorate degree, became my supervisor, the chair of the department, became one of my very good friends. At age 40, he was diagnosed with liver cancer. He scheduled the chemo around his teaching schedule. He felt so compelled to teach the scriptures that he was not gonna allow the cancer to rob him of that great joy. And I had about five minutes a day to spend with Earl in those last nine months as I journeyed with him. And one day, I walked into his office, and he was smiling. He said, how are you doing? I'm okay. Because of the chemo and the radiation, I could experience neuropathy at any moment, the loss of feeling in his fingers. So I enjoy every note on the piano, every string on the guitar. Take a long, loving look at the real. What happens in that process, not only now I begin to see, now I begin to see that I'm not alone. We are joined together. It's the great mystery of our faith. All of us came here for these four days. And all of us, in the silence of our own hearts, are saying, I'm hungry. I need to be fed. I thirst. I need to be refreshed. And the God who has called us here will feed us and refresh us because we are not called alone. It's The good stuff in our lives that continues to be nurtured in this community of faith. If you think that it's been tough for me not being able to smell and taste, you can imagine what it's like for for Priscilla. I used to do most of the cooking. I haven't cooked hardly at all. I, I did make quesadillas the other night. And she said, did you put cheese in these quesadillas? I said, yes. She said, it's moldy. So I'm, I'm sorry, I couldn't taste it, I said. Isn't that kind of interesting that in a marriage, that when, in a family, when one of us suffers, all of us suffer. So it's been an occasion for us to deepen our spiritual life. And so we've been praying every night for 15 minutes. Again, like I told you, Oh my goodness! What would have happened if we had discovered this 25 years ago? Priscilla's is going to come up and, and read uh, a little piece from our prayer book from last night. And then we'll move into small groups.
1: This goes with what Tom's been talking about all day. It's finding time for the odds. It starts with a, a little verse from the Bible. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. Psalms 90 verse 12. And the man that wrote this book is Gary Chapman. He is actually a marriage counselor and he has written a lot of books. And if you've ever heard of the five love languages, he's the author of that book as well. And I found this devotional in the bookstore because I was looking for something that would keep us on track to pray together because... Tom's schedule gets very busy and we get disconnected. So I found this, and it's really been helpful to us. As Christians, we know that life's ultimate meaning is to be found in relationships. First, in a relationship with God, and second, in our relationships with people. On the human level, the marriage relationship is designed by God to be the most intimate, with the parent-child relationship a close second. Yet some of us pursue activities that have little to do with building relationships. How do we stop the merry-go-round and get off? Have you heard people say, I know that I ought to, but I just don't have time? Is it true that we don't have time to do what we ought to do? The word ought means to be bound by moral law, conscience, or a sense of duty. If we are not accomplishing our oughts, then we need to examine our use of time. Time is a resource that the Lord has given us. And like any other resource, we need to be good stewards of it. The verse above, and many other places in the Bible, underscores the bottom line reason for using our time well. Because our time on earth is limited, time is a precious commodity we shouldn't waste. Ultimately, we can control how we use our time. We can accomplish our goals for our closest relationships. Making time for what's important means that we must say no to things of lesser importance. Do you need to sit down and take a fresh look at how you are using your time? Then do it today. And he always ends this little commentary with a, with a prayer. And the prayer at the bottom of this is, Lord, you know how quickly our days on earth pass by. I want to use my time in the best way possible, and that means investing it in my relationship with you and my relationship with my spouse. Help me to make wise decisions as I evaluate my priorities.
0: So in our small groups, five little questions. I always like five because that's the number of fingers. So for... What time is in your life? What time is in your life? For myself, I'm 66. It's about 9 (laughs) p.m. You know, but if you think you're just just kind of waking up that you're just kind of beginning, you you might be about, you know, 6 a.m. What time is in your life? Two, it's too soon to? Three, it's too late to? Four, it's too late to? It's the right time for, five, I need time for. What time is in your life? Too soon to, too late to. Right time for, need time for. Time is a gift that God has given us tonight.